to get them warm, I put my feet in Andy Kirkpatrick's armpit. Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People podcast with myself, Dan Mordup. And his sidekick, Phil Jones. I always get nervous. I always think you're going to forget your name or something. <laughs> always have slightly awkward pause. So, Mr. Jones, how's your week been? Another week in lockdown? Another adventure for you? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a really lovely week actually. But last uh, the last time we did one of these, I I said it was all about tears, and it turned out it was tier one, tier two, tier three. Uh, but this week, Babs and I shed a tear because uh, our daughter Claire asked our grandchild Frank who's five years old, what he'd like for Christmas. And he thought about it and he said, I'd, I'd like to go and do a sleepover with grandma and granddad. And not wow. just for one night, but for two nights. And that was his sole request for a Christmas present. So that brought a little tear to Babs and I and um, made us realise what all this is all about. So very, very good. How about you? Very sweet. Now that's brilliant. Now, um, Nothing so lovely as that. We've just been busy, busy at work, to be honest. My, uh, it's, I think, you know, whenever Christmas comes up, there's it, always that rush to Christmas, isn't it? You know, there's always that sort of, let's get as much thing, things done as we can before Christmas. But I think as well, just really trying to manage everyone again during lockdown and make sure people, people are, are safe and well and happy as they can be. And I think like, today's guest I'm super excited about because really speaks into the environment that we're all in right now and, and into the needs that we have as a, as a, as a people, as a country. So I'm, I'm really excited. Well, I've given you a problem today because uh, our guest is also a Phil. So when you're oh, referring wow. to Phil, it could be Phil 1 or Phil 2. So How, how are we going to do this? Well, well, the listeners can't see us, so they've got no idea. So I'll, I can just say well, I'm the young, handsome one. You could just say Grandpa. <laughs> okay, there you go. I'm Grandpa Phil, and I'm just about to uh, tell you who the other Phil is. Um, so today we're joined by the inspirational Phil Packer, MBE, charity fundraiser and activist and founder of BRIT, the British Inspiration Trust. Phil is a man who knows more than most about overcoming adversity. Twelve years ago, he was left paralyzed after a rocket attack while serving in Basra. He was told he may never walk again. Fast forward just one year, and within one nine-month period, he rode the channel, walked the London Marathon over a 14-day period, and hauled himself up El Capitan, completing over 4,250 pull-ups in four days, raising millions for charity and inspiring millions more. We'll find out more about his incredible story and the amazing challenges he's set for himself so far and how Brit has evolved over the years. Over to you, Dan. Welcome, Phil Packer, MBE. Thank you very much. Good. So great to have you. And with an introduction like that, I kind of, uh, kind of don't know where to start, but I'm going to have to start with where we start with everyone, <laughs> which is if you were to be stuck in a lift, Phil, with someone, who would it be and why? That's a really challenging question to answer because, because of lockdown, 
and and I haven't been. My granny's ninety nine, and she doesn't live very far from me. But but I can't visit because she's in a residential home. Um, so my parents have been the kind of the visitor to her. So I should say my granny, really. Oh. Um, it, it, I think in in the current situation, but but I think the question is probably geared to more someone you know some 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 someone who's better well known than my grandma. Um, <laughs> I'll say my granny in this current situation, but I think that uh, I'd say the Duke and Duchess Cambridge. And, and the reason why I'd say that is I, I uh, in the charity sector, sometimes things are all about impact. And you, you sort of look at the roles that the Royals have, the, 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 the number of charities that they are patron of or the the Queen, the Prince Charles, Princess Anne. But I'm really interested in, in the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and, and what they're doing with mental health because that's the area I work in. Um, and it, it's that impact that they have and what their future plans are and what they see that role to be. I'd just be fascinated to have that kind of chat because it, they are sort of, in the UK, two of the most influential people when it comes to mental health. So, so that would be my other choice. That's a great answer. And my granny would probably quite like to meet them if she was in the lift as well. <laughs> would, would they like to meet your granny? Oh, I, I, well, I'm sure they would. <laughs> <laughs> now, Phil, um, you suffered life-changing injuries back in 2008. And the path your life has taken since has been markedly different. Can you tell us what happened and how you've ended up doing what you're doing today? Yeah, uh, I think it was because the, the role I used to have when I was serving in in the armed forces you you never expect it to happen to you but you certainly don't want it to happen to anyone that you look after or are responsible for um but there's a risk and and therefore you know i don't regret any day of my military service but these things happen uh, but but i think what was quite challenging was the almost immediate effect once you know the long-term diagnosis or prognosis it's just trying to get your head around that you've you've lost i was i was initially a wheelchair user when i after my spinal cord injury my mine is a a t12 l1 so it's right on the waist so initially it was called a complete injury which means there was no movement whatsoever but it was um sensory incomplete so it's quite a lot of pain and i think at the time you're just trying to get your head around everything being in hospital for five months and and trying to understand why everyone's doing everything for you and then as you start to become a wheelchair user and you you go through your rehabilitation there's you suddenly get more freedom and and you're you know you're in control of the wheelchair which is a bonus and and so so for some strange reason, with all the NHS staff around you, you start to realise that that is the situation. There are a lot of people in the hospital ward that have got far greater spinal injury than, than I did, as in, as in from the neck down. That's sobering. So I've always found, all the way through this journey, there's always someone suffering a more challenging journey than you. And my choice of working in the charity sector is that 
I meet two kinds of people. I meet the people that look after the staff and the carers and the support teams and the charity workers. And I meet these extraordinary people. And that's the motivator, I think, um, that you've got like-minded people that you talk to. You're supporting other people who need assistance. But I... I, I appreciate that mine's a sort of disability, but I, I you get to learn to read situations and people quite well. And I can, I, it's almost that you can get a sense or a feel when someone is really struggling. And I, and I think that I didn't have that capability before I was injured. And I think it's emotional intelligence. I think that this is, been a journey that I've got a little bit more heightened emotional intelligence than perhaps I had before and it it drives you to want to help people that are in a more challenging situation so that's kind of the journey from injury and how it's sort of every year you just get on because you've just got to get on remind us how old you were when that happened I was 36 36 and you were in charge of quite a large number of men weren't you at, at the time men and women yeah yeah we i was a police officer i was a i was a major at the time so we had i i don't know 120 or so i think uh that, that were with me and then i i had deployed from germany so i had a i had men and women in germany as well but we sort of had someone to look after them while i was away um and then other responsibilities you know you're sort of like the primary police officer in in uh, you know, where, where, wherever you are with the deployed forces that you're with, um, you know, and you're working with other countries and, and also, you know, yeah, lots of different responsibilities. I think, I think that's actually an interesting point because within a, you know, within seconds, you've lost command, you've lost responsibility. You, you, you're leaving them there and they're your responsibility. That was really hard, you know, flying back from, well, I wasn't really with it. I was on morphine, but well, but you, you've left everyone behind and they're your responsibility and who's going to look after them. And that becomes the, 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 the main point I think initially yeah. was it felt like something being ripped away. Um, yeah. And, and Phil, how did you go from, obviously you've explained some of your personal journey and, and maybe some of the sort of internal motivations that sort of drive you or lead you now. How did that translate into setting up bricks? Well, I don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone, but sometimes you get hospital visits from people and you know that they're looking at you thinking, well, you're never going to do that job again. Or perhaps you haven't got the capability to, you know, add to the party anymore sort of thing. And I and I didn't like that. And, and, and also, at the time, Help for Heroes was a very small charity. And I just wanted... And I wanted to help wounded service men and women who were really struggling but I, although I was in hospital I just wanted to do my bit so I thought that I would do the sorry sorry to go back a little bit but I thought that I would do I'd like to do the London Marathon and I had met someone in hospital who was a wheelchair athlete and you can only take part as a wheelchair athlete if you're an elite wheelchair racer um, which which is strange actually because you can dress as a 
die in a diving suit or put flippers on but but you can't do it in a normal wheelchair anyway but but um so i the plan was i had to then get a race wheelchair work out how to use it train in it and then apply to do a half marathon to get into the london marathon that was the plan and then i i went from a complete injury to be able to take my first steps so I spoke to my consultant and said, this is what I want to do. And spoke to London Marathon and they gave me permission to do the London Marathon over a two-week period. Wow. That's And there started raising a million for Help for Heroes. After that, I was asked to be a patron and ambassador to a number of charities, many of which were for young people like um, Prince's Trust and UK Scouting um, and, and many others. So suddenly I'd gone from sort of realising that I was no longer going to stay in the armed forces to having a role, all of it, a new role in the charity sector as an ambassador and go on visits, go to different centres, outdoor centres, but there didn't seem to be a centre that all charities could use, to, you know, to refer or to send young people that would be run by professionals. They all pay a lot of money to use different facilities. So I spoke to 55 charity CEOs and said, why, what, what are your thoughts on building a bespoke centre, a centre of inspiration? And why not ask inspirational figures to come and spend time with the, the young people that, that, are, that are there? Just so that there's some breathing space, you know, so, and also meeting inspirational figures is a huge motivator. So that was the creation of the British Inspiration Trust, initially build a centre. Um, I had quite a lot of momentum of a lot of support at the time. And interestingly, that when I sort of switched from supporting the wounded to supporting young adults, it was harder to fundraise. I don't know why, but it just was. Then there was the kind of capital build, the land search, and um, it, it was challenging, very, very challenging. Um, and I worked on that for a number of years until um, uh, I think it was in 2000, I raised awareness and I was, and I, I had been asked to, do I know what it's like out there? So in 2012, I, I spent a year on the road walking 2012 miles in every county of the UK, being hosted by charities, schools, universities, colleges, to get a really good feel for the challenges young adults face all around the UK. And at that, and then, and then um, you realise it's a far greater number scaled than I ever thought it was. So in 2018, there's a charity called Over the Wall who, who um, want to build a, a far greater or far bigger centre than the one I wanted to. So I uh, collaborated with that charity and uh, my vision of Brit is at the very heart of what they want to do now. Um, and Brit has evolved to now providing inspirational events to improve mental health and fitness throughout the UK, non-residential, but to 
to get inspirational figures to go and visit universities and colleges and support young adults and students who are struggling with mental health. So it's evolved and I'm very much a collaborator. I don't agree with two charities doing exactly the same thing when they could be working much more closely together, more effectively, reduce overheads. It, that's how you'd work in business. So yeah. that's how the how that's how my journey sort of went from Brit to where Brit, Brit is now. Brilliant, absolutely. And where did the, the two Phils meet along the way? How long have you guys known each other? Ooh, Phil. Uh, well, he wasn't a grandfather at the time. I know that. <laughs> um, if I recall, I had been invited to Sports Podge. Phil might correct me if, that, if yeah. I'm wrong here. And uh, I didn't know anything about it. And I was sat at a table um, and... On that table was the chief executive of Special Olympics and there were all sorts of people from all walks of life. That's how we first started. And then Phil said, you know, how can I help you? And he, with actually at the time it was it was branding digital marketing, which is not sport. But the, then there's another podge for that. And this and I realized this quite extraordinary man has got quite a few contacts out there, but he knows people personally really well and he knows who will be great for someone else to work you know work together and that's how our friendship started and then as I started to meet very rarely can I offer anyone anything but over a period of time I thought well actually a few of my friends that I'm meeting who are you know inspirational sports personalities might enjoy going along to sports podge so if there's a way I can sort of give back to Phil which is you know challenging at times to find a way to do that then getting more people to go to sports podge is is probably the best way way to do that so that's how we kind of evolved our friendship and it's been you know it's just grown closer and closer ever since Fantastic. There, there was a lovely moment i remember originally used to have the podge lunches at the arts club in dover street and they had the lovely gardens at the back and having lunch out there on a summer's day was just one of the nicest things you could imagine and and i invited I think it may have been seven or eight leading designers to come and have lunch uh, in the garden with myself and Phil. And I told them all that I wanted them to meet this, this man that had this vision and to see what they could do to help him in terms of creating a brand for Brit. And at the end of that was about a two or three hour session, wasn't it, Phil? We had beautiful... Yeah, yeah beautiful lunch and then uh, and Phil identified with one of the people around that table that he felt that he would love to love to work with and they went on to create the brand for Brit uh, and I can't remember how many years ago that was maybe 10 years yeah it was but that would so around about that time and that was just one of those moments where you think just by putting the right people talking to each other something magical happens and you never know what is going to happen from those meetings do you absolutely um so less than a year had passed since the injury and you decided to row the english channel with fellow adventurer alistair humphreys at what stage after agreeing to do this did you realize that neither of you had ever rowed before and how the hell did you manage that the London Marathon was the, the one thing, you know, that was that, you know, you always know when it's going to take place every single year. 
uh, in April. So that was my, that's what I thought I was going to be doing. And then I can't remember how an Al and I met, but I think you may have contacted me and said, do you, you know, do you fancy doing something together? And we didn't know quite what. And we thought, why don't we, you know, I'm doing a wall. Why don't we do a, because I was a wheelchair user, why not try rowing? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so, you know, at the time, why not go for the, the channel? And, and bizarrely, uh, uh, then I've been introduced to someone called Andy Kirkpatrick, who said, why don't we climb something, you know, you can sit in, in a kind of hang gliding seat and dangle below the climbers and you just, you do pull-ups on the pulley system. So suddenly one, what was one challenge became three and how do you fit that together? So Alan and I said, well, why don't we do the row in February then I'll do the London Marathon in April. And then in, I think, June, July, I flew to, you know, Yosemite and did El Capitan. Um, so, so <laughs> just like that. Do, <laughs> all, all Alan and I could do was, I, I was then at uh, Headley Court doing my rehab. So in between rehab, in evenings and lunchtimes and mornings, started to, you know, row on an adaptive rower, which is basically a, a seat that's, on a normal rower that provides you the back support type of thing. Um, and obviously you're only using, you're not using your legs, which is a, 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 quite a big percentage of rowing is legs. So it's, it's arms uh, and, and back and shoulders really for me. And Al's able-bodied and, and he's quite nuts as an adventurer really. He's done extraordinary <laughs> things. And um, so, I just, I thought when he'd asked me, he was a rower. And I think when he asked me, I think he thought, you know, I was. And and when we got hold of this ocean rowboat to row across the channel, I'd been introduced to a guy called Simon Goody, who is the GB rowing coach. And he said, come up to Docklands. This is where I'm based. And I can help you and Al with your rowing technique. So we got there and the boat been delivered there and, you know, putting all the waterproofs on, all that sort of stuff. And I... I, I uh, I, this is going to sound awful, but I, I'd managed to sort of get from the wheelchair onto the, the jetty, onto the boat. And I was looking at these oars thinking, have I got that? Have I got it in on? Have I got it in the right place? And I said to Al, is that, is that look all right? He went, and he laughed saying, you know, what are you asking me for? And I said, well, I've never been in one before. And he said, well, I don't know asking me, nor have I. And this guy, Simon Goody, was on the jetty. He said, well, when are you rowing? And we said, in two weeks' time. And you know, I, I think the best thing to do is just point and shoot, you guys. And uh, so he was a very nice guy, and he helped us with a bit of technique. But I think he thought it was not doomed, but we were we were risking quite a bit. So that's that's why that's how it all came about. But Al, Al is one of... He has never, I've never seen him raise his voice. I've never, he's one of the most relaxed, calm guys you could ever have. So in, anything goes wrong, just takes it in his stride. Meticulous planner, really steely determination, an amazing friend to have, or, you know, we grew that friendship. But of all the people, you know, he was just fantastic on that rowboat. Uh, and suffers from seasickness, which is... <laughs> So, of course, when you're sick in a boat it, and you don't get it out, it's just swishing around your feet. It was horrible, I have to say. It was not a pleasant journey. Anyway, sorry, I could talk about that for ages. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Dan the man.
Yeah, I'm, I'm just a little, I'm absorbed by the stories. But I mean, obviously, you've just described the sort of the the physical demands of, of and the challenges you, you know that you've you've done in the last few years. Similar, I'm sure there's similar stories from the army in terms of physical demand and the challenges there. How important has the team been to you and trust in the team? Huge, because it's the bit that no one sees. Right. And and the, the, the interesting thing with doing charity challenges, and, and actually it, why, why cha- charities get a little bit nervous when people do out of the ordinary things that will raise awareness of their charity, if it goes wrong, it, 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 why people would ask the question, well, why did you do it? Why did the charity allow you to do it? So there's always this very careful trade-off with this sort of thing. So, and also I, you know, aside from the sort of Medicaid, I don't want, I don't want to put myself in a position where I worsen my spinal injury. It, it, I don't want, I don't want to worsen it. No, of, of course I don't. So, and I'm also aware that I don't, often see when I've when I've reached my limit because once you've com- once I've committed to do something people have expectations and there's pressure and I, I, if I may give an example in 2010 I did the climb the three peaks for sport relief but for me walking a mile is equivalent to three to four miles with someone without a spinal injury so uh you know a 26 mile marathon with the effortfulness of a spinal injury is 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 uh, is more than 26 miles distance if that, if that makes sense it's a, it's a it's quite a bit of effort which is why it, it, you know it took me 14 days to do the first one because I was only allowed to do two miles a day, and when I did the second one, it took 26 hours because I take a bit longer, but it's but I'm still sweating even though I'm walking really slowly. But in 2010, we were up in Ben Nevis, and it was the, we we did it in February, which was not a good time of year to do it, and uh, I, I did it with Al Humphreys, Andy Kirkpatrick, uh, Kate Silverton. Um, the BBC reporter presenter and I me walking slowly means they are getting cold because they're standing around waiting right so there's a little bit of the team looking after each other but we were 150 meters from the peak and it was taking me so long because of the of the incline that I was on my hands and knees and it was taking so long with the weather coming in that Andy said, you need to make a decision whether we carry on because of the daylight and the conditions. And I said, I can't make that call, Andy. It's yours as a team leader. And we, arguably, we didn't, I didn't complete the three peaks. I, I didn't complete one of the, the peaks. But for me, I, I feel, in a way, I did less than 150 metres. But I actually feel... Um, quite proud that we didn't endanger anybody. We did the right thing. We'd obviously spoken to Mountain Rescue who were aware of what we were doing anyway. We had a BBC crew with us. If it had gone wrong, it would have been great TV, but it would have been disastrous for sport relief, really, because it would look like we hadn't thought it through and we were endangering ourselves. And may I also say, potentially Mountain Rescue. So 
I think a strong team around me it gives me confidence but I, I'm all I, it, it's not just the physical challenge it's everything else that's to do with that which is why now you don't really see very many people I don't think at all doing the London Marathon and taking a little bit longer and that's because when the barriers start to be picked up after the London Marathon last runners go by I'd be still there but there is no route anymore because the the traffic's on the roads so that's a that's quite unfair in a way on London Marathon as an organization because they have responsibility for me with a number on my chest but I'm I'm 20 hours behind so there's a big risk piece with all these things mm. and and I understand that I didn't at the time you know sometimes you know I get very frustrated that I can't do something take part in something but I I do truly understand why you know one has to you know mitigate risk and and have that team support around you all the time phil i think i remember having dinner with you and kate silverton uh, and darren i think the four of us and i can't remember if this is just because i got drunk but i did did kate massage your feet during the climb to try and get some warmth back into your feet or was i imagining that it's been a while now but i would say <laughs> I, I um, because of my spinal injury, I can, can't control my temperature in, uh, below the waist. So when I go cold, I don't know. And when I overheat, of course, I, I know I'm overheating because I'm sweating. And I'm and I, you know, which is why I find it very hard to wear a suit in a marquee or whatever it is, because I just get too hot. But despite having lots of layers on, I couldn't tell if my feet are cold. And the only way that someone can tell that that's the case is by looking at your eyes looking for anything that could steer towards hypothermia so the only way to do it every so often we would stop shoes off socks off feel the feet you know and and mm. i did this with kate and we didn't have a huge group by the way there was only about five of us doing it six of us doing it but um that would have been a highly likely story that you were told <laughs> but i you know what wasn't included was that you know to get them warm I put my feet in Andy Kirkpatrick's armpits, which, <laughs> but you know, it's it's that it's that buddy buddy thing. It's that looking after yeah. each other and as a team. Uh, yeah, Kate would have done that without a doubt. You know? Yeah, brilliant. Well, oh well, I thought she was amazing. By the way, really lovely contact. So thank you for that. Um, you're an ambassador and a patron for a number of charities, mm -hmm. which has enabled you to meet some incredible people. Um, and here's some incredible stories. Do you remember key people or moments along the way that changed the way you think and the direction you took? I suppose, Phil, there's, there's professional and there's personal. The ambassadors that have joined Brit or who have supported what I'm doing. And there are also a number of people that have been, have inspired me during the challenges or on the challenges. So, for example, it sounds a little bit strange when I mention names and it's not in a name dropping way, but I think that a number of people that have provided messages of support on the channel row, you know, message from Prince Charles mid row. I, I had no idea that to receive that kind of message or from Sir Ranulph Fiennes when I was in hospital saying, don't give up were huge. I can't, because you can't quite believe that someone has been kind enough to just put a few words together 
but the impact that has when you're at your lowest is huge. So it's not a name dropping thing in any way at all. It's just, I think people approached inspirational figures that they believe would, it fitted with what I was doing, I guess. One person I, 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 I have to say has been amazing was when I completed the London Marathon, so Steve Redgrave presented my medal to me on the mouth. He also presented my Helen Rollison Sports Personality of the Year Award. He also supported me on two other marathons when I was trying to reduce my time. He joined me on Mount Snowden on the Three Peaks. All the way through my journey, he has been there in a capacity to obviously support what cause I'm doing it for. But underneath that, it's Sir Steve Redgrave. Yeah. And, and, and I grew up watching this extraordinary man over 20 years in five separate Olympics. And to suddenly have him putting a medal around your neck is, is, a, is a quite extraordinary experience. I'd be very wrong. In, there have been lots of people in different moments when we're all sometimes need that little bit of encouragement or the right words to be said. And I think that's where these relationships don't just become fleeting. They are very, very personal relationships. We've spoken a lot about, obviously, some of your personal physical, uh, you know, and, and personal challenges you've, you've overcome, but also you're, you know, we're in a particularly tough period economically as well, um, as well as obviously everything happening around us. What's been some of the challenges around setting up a charity and, and, and really, you know, pushing and, and, and really plugging away at that vision over a number of years. And for those people that listen to the podcast right now that are sort of maybe, you know, feeling a bit discouraged or times are tough, have you got any tips or advice for those that are struggling right now? I, I made a number of decisions over the years that I felt were the, the right ones to make. And by doing that, it has made the Brit journey a lot slower and take a lot longer than I had anticipated. I have a disability war pension. I felt that it was appropriate to volunteer my time as chief executive and not be paid. Because if I'm asking other people to support me, be it their businesses or them as individuals, I felt it was important to set an example that I am certainly not doing it for those funds to pay for me. I also felt that um, I really wanted to not employ lots of staff and I don't employ any staff with Brit. It's all voluntary. How we've survived is that it's through the gifted professional services in each area, for example, digital, branding, marketing, other big ones, because you need to raise awareness of what you're doing and reach the audiences you need to. All the ambassadors give their time. So everything you're trying to do is with minimal overheads. I have no offices based at a university. So if I can do everything gifted, and this, you know, right now, I'm obviously you know, preparing the next Brit challenge. There is a cost to that. There are operational costs. I have, because I can't get it all gifted. But if I can prove that I, you know, and show that I don't have high overheads, that every penny will be spent delivering that challenge. It's not paying for staff costs. I hope that is encouraging and inspiring to anybody who would like to assist and support to grow the charity with me. And the long-term aspiration is I would like young trustees mentored by trustees. I would like marketing digital branding. I would like to have young adults integral to the charity 
fulfilling those roles supported by a branding company, a digital company, a marketing company, so that Brit is driven by young people for young people. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, but I surround myself with lots of advisors to make it happen as well. But yeah, this is a, a very challenging time, particularly when it comes to sponsorship. And I think that's why all, you know, commercial support or, or donations. People want to know, I, I hate to say this, but when it's with a sponsor, for example, unless it's, it's gifted and it's, and it's personal, that company have to reflect, you know, where they spent it, why? And, and have they got good value for money from that charity in a way? But, but I'm very much a do it for the right thing, do it for the right reasons. And I think that as a, as a mental health charity, at a time when I really believe everybody is challenged in some way by the current situation, particularly loneliness and isolation, particularly with many people working from home, but not being able to see colleagues and friends, it's challenging. Um, but what I would say is the people that we're trying, the young adults we're trying to support, perhaps don't have those mechanisms by living away from home or their mechanisms of their friends that they're, they're used to seeing and, and the support being around. And sometimes it's embarrassing to talk about it. Very frequently it is for lots of people. Um, that's why I need that support to help them. We can do everything we can to support mental health but also prevent suicide that's really the bottom line that's a good time for me then to ask for you to explain the brit 2021 challenge what it is that your your plan is um how it's going so far and also let people who are going to be listening to this know how they might be able to help you so tell us the story Okay, so a few years back, I had really challenging internal complications that didn't allow me to travel because I don't have any bladder bowel function. It was it was a really difficult time. The hospital stepped in, and I now have improved. Have in, there have been improvements that have given me better quality of life. But um, when I started to recover, my ambition was to row two thousand and twenty miles around the UK coastline. So I have a, I still have an ocean rowboat on my drive, actually. Um, and I trained for a year with the University of Chichester. I anticipated the second rower being inspirational figures. And we would go around the UK raising awareness and money for mental health. After a year of training, medically, I was told you will cause further spinal damage because you'll be spending four and a half months at sea. And the buffeting on your spine could be very risky. I had been planning this for a year, but, but someone said to me, bring the challenge to young adults. Bring the, bring the Roe Britannia challenge to young adults. I completely changed the plan very quickly and invited every university and college in the UK to row 2,020 miles and raise money for sport relief and asked their leadership teams to match that money for uh, mental health charities, including Brit. And instead of rowing around the UK, I was given a four by four for six months and I attached the rowboat to the vehicle and I, I spent five months driving around to every single university and a number of colleges in the UK to thank and encourage and 
enthuse the students to take part in their challenge. Um, so 130 visits between November 19 and early March. And we had after we had 100 teams taking part with more coming on board. And a week before lockdown, every university and college closed. So all fundraising had to stop and all rowing had to stop because the, the rowing was on indoor rowers in union college gyms. So Row Britannia hasn't finished. But throughout the spring and summer, I spoke to all the partner organisations and said, I, I need your advice here, what to do? And their decision or their, their, their advice, which I took, was you've got to draw a line and look at 2021 because we might not be going back. Or if we do, it might be remotely. And that's exactly what's happened. So over the summer, I have been focused on a, a Brit UK-wide 2021 challenge. It is a 2021 mile challenge, a team challenge. And it's designed for every university, college and student union in the UK, 450, to enter a team and to encourage as many students and staff to take part in that Team 2021 target. And they can do it not just by rowing, but wheelchair, hand cycle, swim, jog, run, walk, paddle, canoe. However you want to take part, you do it safely, clearly. And, and, and you can do it at home or on campus. So every student, a member of staff can take part in this. And if, if for example, a, a one university encouraged 2,021 students to, 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 you know, to take part and they raised a pound each, that's 2,021 pounds. If every union college did it, that's a million pounds. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking UK wide. Now I've toured the UK twice. So it'll take place in February, over the month of February, starting on the 1st. So I've partnered with Universities UK, Colleges Scotland, Colleges Wales, Association of Colleges, Sport Scotland, Sport Wales, um, and uh, support from the National Union of Students. I've toured every university, so I've got a little book of names to get invites out to their vice chancellors and and you know get the message out to student union presidents so that's the challenge and the, the money that they raise will be split between five charities so student minds nightline the charlie waller trust and papyrus which are prevention of young suicide and brit those four charities are frontline support um, and so I've got those four charities who will help with that as well. And then, then everyone takes part in March and it finishes, sorry, February, and it finishes on the 4th of March, which is University Mental Health Day. The second part of it is that inspiration piece I spoke about. So, you know, I've gone to many of the inspirational figures. I, I know Sir Steve Redgrave, um, uh, Dame Catherine Granger, many Paralympians and Olympians. Um, sports personalities. Rebecca Adlington last Rebecca week. Rebecca Adlington. <laughs> um, but I've got 450 potential teams taking part or could take part. So what I need to do is get 450 inspirational figures to pop into their university or college in February and encourage and thank the students for taking part. However, if it's not possible to visit, 
record a video message and help on social media, encourage on social media. That this is where Brit is collectively powerful. It's, you know, it's partnering with organizations. But when it comes to, you know, for example, marketing, digital media, I need as many partners or people to come on board and help me because I need to get that message out. I think we can raise a huge amount of money, but it's all about mental health and fitness. It's, 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 it's everyone sort of taking part in something fun and connecting people at a time when people are isolated and feeling lonely. So I hope it's going to be a great way to start 2021. Wonderful. That's so good. I think our listeners listen to this. What a, what a good thing to look forward to as well. Something that really can spur us all on as an industry, but also obviously as, as a country. And on, on the point of positivity, obviously, you know, we've spoken about this, you know, it's a challenging climate right now. But what's the last thing that you saw that you thought, you know what, that's wonderful. That's really good. I'm sure like everyone listening, everyone's listening at home. So you can be, I think we're all getting through each day. Uh, and a lot of people are very busy, but strangely, without travel, you have a little bit more time to think. And for me personally, sometimes I want things to, I want, I, I want things to happen and I want, I want to feel good about something happening. But for me, I need little wins every day. I, I, I think we all need little wins. Be that a catch up with Phil Jones or, um, you know, a, a, a Becky Adlington coming on board the other day. Just, you know, I'd never met her, but within the space of a day, she'd come back with a, you know, a, a full support to the challenge. And those little, they're not little wins, but that's a win. I guess uh, in answer to your question, if someone says, uh, actually today there's a lady who's helping me called Louise De Silva. She's just been fantastic in the, in the, in the time that she's been given because she's sort of, sometimes you need a second set of eyes on things and to talk things through. And I shared with her the quotes on from Universities UK. And in 2018, 19, 82,000 students reported mental health challenges two and a half times greater number than in 2014-15. And I shared that with Louise and, and you know, it's, it's upsetting. You know, it's, it's one of those sobering things of which I'm, I, I, I'm also uh, have asked for the number of student suicides and I'm waiting for that to come through. It's very, very sobering part of, of what I do. And I, sh I shared the information with Louise and, and for her to say, um, you know, you're doing the right thing is, you know, it's a, I'm getting a little bit choked, but sometimes you need people to say what you're doing matters. It, it, you know, it is tiring to work in this environment, but we all need people sometimes to say you're doing a good job. Awesome. And sometimes we need friends like Phil to pick up the phone, which he does, or just a message on WhatsApp just to say how you're doing. That for me is is really important. So I'm, you know, if I can pay that forward, that's what I'm I'm trying to do. That's brilliant. And last question from me, Phil. Make it a happy one, please. Ah, <laughs> it's a happy. Well, it's kind of a happy one. It's kind of more about sort of getting some your insight, really. But we always ask this question towards the end because, as an agency, we're all about sort of making complex things more simple. 
We call them wonderfully simple. So what's one of life's complexities you'd like to see made simpler? I just believe that you can be more powerful when you come together than everyone trying to do a bit. Hmm. The people that are listening will understand from the branding, marketing, you've got clear messaging, you're getting out there to as many people as possible, and it's successful. I think across the charity sector, no matter what charity is supporting what cause, it's really hard when you're, many of you are trying to get one firm on board to help with something, and you end up competing in some kind of lottery or, or process that takes a lot of time and resources when you just want to, can you help? And I wish the process was a lot simpler for people to work together in that way. I don't, I don't see Brit competing with other charities. We're a conduit charity. I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm a charity trying to raise money for other charities. So um, I feel I get it, but I wish it weren't such a complex situation where you have to compete. Yeah, I'm going to say the voluntary aspect of the workforce being able to support a charity officially using their skills and resources would be fantastic. And that's that's part of that process of supporting. That simpler process of that volunteering piece would be would be something I wish were, you know, much better. Yeah, great answer. A lovely way to uh, end this fantastic conversation. And so Phil two from Phil one and Dan, thank you very much indeed. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast.